Well, it's so good to be with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them and open them to Matthew chapter 13, please. We're going to be looking at several of Jesus' parables this morning. Uh, they, they run together uh, somewhat thematically, so I think it helps us to hit more than just one. Jesus has turned the corner in his ministry and ends up, um, while teaching publicly, being much more willing to teach his disciples privately, to pull them away for personal instruction. In fact, he says one of the reasons that he's teaching in parables is both to disclose to his disciples unique and precious truth, as well as leave those who are hostile to him and hostile to the gospel in the dark. And you'll see, even the apostles have a hard time understanding him, and so uh, it, it seems as though every time they're instructed that they have to privately ask for an interpretation. Now, they didn't get very much of it either initially, and keep having to come back to Jesus and saying, so, so what did you mean by that? What did that mean? Why did you say it that way? And my assumption then is that they probably did that with everything, although we only have a few of the explanations and the rest of them, I think, by the grace of God's word, we, we have a, a good ability to patch them together and understand the whole. So in Matthew 13, verses 24 through, we'll read down all the way through 43 eventually, he gives a series of analogies or parables. Um, one of them deals with the parable of a man who owns a field. The next, uh, the, the idea of a man who plants a mustard seed. And finally, just simply yeast or leaven is how the scripture uses that word there. So I want to read that first one, walk through the story a little bit, and then just kind of give you an overview of the whole passage and then, and then identify, I think, the themes Jesus is trying to preach to us through. So when you look down in verse 24, we have this, this story about a man who owns this field. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. Then they went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So the first, the first parable, if we just look in terms of the agricultural context, we just have a man who has a field and apparently some type of competitor, an enemy is what he calls them. Um, sneaks in, and among all the freshly planted grain seed, he plants a weed. In fact, the weed is probably the darnel plant, which looks very much like wheat in its initial stages of growth. And then when it's fully harvested, it'll look a little different. It's actually toxic and poisonous. And so he's, he's got a feel that at least initially, while in close inspection, you can tell the difference between this, the wheat and the darnel or the weed. So I'm trying not to say wheat and weed, otherwise you'll have no idea what's happening. Uh, so, so we have the, the grain and the weeds growing together. And, and the owner says, hey, I didn't do that. There's an enemy who's, who's sneaked in, who's trying to sabotage and cause problems here. Because if, if he harvested it all together, he would produce a toxic grain that would, would ruin him. And so he says, let it grow together. And when the harvest comes, then we'll distinguish. Burn one and the other is good fruit. I am not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this, but I think there's a sobering concern for the church in this. That among the grain, which are the believers, Christ allows within his church poisonous, toxic, wheat-looking weeds. And so it's upon each one of us to examine our own hearts to see whether or not we are in the faith, is what First Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13 says. And so we need to evaluate, do I have the fruit of a genuine believer, or do I just look like one? Does my soul love Christ? Or am I just doing this thing because it's acceptable and good, and I want my kids to grow up learning Christianity? Are you genuine and sincere 
Are you just a poser who looks like a believer? But in judgment, the angels will determine. That is the first analogy he gives. I want you to look down at verse 31. He puts forth another one. I think he teaches a different point, but it parallels and, and expounds, I think, the first one. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds. Now, I don't think he literally means it is the tiniest seed ever in existence, as much as he's just saying, it's this minuscule little guy. And when it, when it grows, it is larger than all the garden plants, becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33 then begins a new analogy that has that same point. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. And what happens then with flour when there's yeast in it? That yeast spreads through all the flour and goes from this little tiny teaspoon to a full lump of yeasty dough. And so both, those, both of those tend to have something like small to big, right? Okay, look at the next section then. Verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without parables. And this was to fill, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So he's doing parables both in fulfillment but also as a dividing line, as we looked at last week, that also fulfills Isaiah 6. Then look in verse 30, 36. He left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable. That was the one we just looked at with the weeds and, and the wheat, the, the grain and the darnel. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. We look at this, and he's unpacking for us the story or, or the message of the kingdom. I'm trying, I'm trying to outline this in a way that's going to be understandable for us, so we're going to bounce to a couple other passages of Scripture in just a moment. But I want to I just step back and ask you the simple question, what is the kingdom? When he says, hey, this is what the kingdom is like, it's like a man who had a field, and this happens, and then it says this was hidden from the foundations of the earth, but now it's revealed to you, the secrets of the kingdom. And then we end with this thought that they're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. If you're like me, when I was 18, I would hear kingdom. I have no clue what's going on. I just know that we pray about it. It's like, God, bring your kingdom, right? Our Father, it's art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. You have any idea what you're praying? Right? We talk about the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Okay, so I think if we go back into the Garden of Eden, you see the first king kind of messing up. And he's not even identified as the king yet. His name is Adam. Uh, it, it appears as though God's plan for all of human history has always been to have a human representative govern for him this earth. And so Adam set up as that first kind of proto-king. That first king that's supposed to manage this earth, he is told to tend to the garden, to oversee the animals, uh, to nurture and care for it, for the Lord. So rather than God governing immediately, that is, that is God being the king that we answer to, it seems as though God is the king by extension. That is, through Adam, God would govern. So a kingdom, I think the idea begins then. If you think what's happening, then we have a king. I've identified him as Adam. We have a kingdom, or maybe you could say realm, a place he rules over, and we have rulership. Tend to the garden, oversee it. You have dominion over the earth. That's what God tells him. And so we have a ruler reigning over a realm, if you like ours. We move forward through history, and I think we see the constant rhythm of that idea. 
The most famous king in the Old Testament is whom? It's King David. And I think we see, we see the narrowing of this kind of kingdom project through Abraham down to the nation of Israel as, as kind of the epicenter of the kingdom program revisited. And so we have King David on the throne. We have a realm, the capital being Israel and Jerusalem particularly, over which God wants to extend his rulership over the whole earth. So we have king in his realm exercising his reign. And what does he do? I mean, we have Adam in paradise and he sins. We have David in his palace and what does he do? We have the sin of Bathsheba. We have catastrophic failures of both men, both of these prototypes. And God, God is gracious to David. I mean, what a sweet story of forgiveness. David totally disqualifies himself from being the king in his sin. And God allows him to remain on the throne of David and even so then promises that a future descendant of his will be the Messiah. It's the Hebrew word for anointing. So when a king is anointed, if you remember David, uh, Samuel came down to Bethlehem. He pours some concoction of olive oil and some herbal, uh, herbal, herbal um, additives to it. Herb is a guy's name, just in case you're wondering. Herb is what you call him. Um, so, so, so they pour this on David's head, and it's a sign of, of the, the Holy Spirit choosing and empowering him for the task of being king. And so when we have that word Messiah, David was, was Messiahed. He was anointed. And so we talk about a Messiah coming. We're talking about an anointed one, one who's going to be set aside by the Spirit, appointed by God, anointed by God to be king. So when Jesus says kingdom, Israel gets it. They're like, we're the place where the king Rules were his realm, his capital, over which he exercises his authority because we're his realm, and he is going to rule, and he is going to be our ruler. So when Jesus comes and says, I'm the Messiah, they hear him to say, I'm the king. And they're going, finally, get rid of these thugs, Romans. Get them out. Overturn them. But you know what they want? They want him to rule to get rid of Rome. But they have no desire themselves to be ruled. And so they reject Jesus as ruler over them. They only want him to rescue them from Rome so they can be free to sin and do whatever they want. Listen, Christianity has never been about your personal freedom to do wrong. It has never been a ticket for you to live in the world without consequences or fear of hell. That has never been the kingdom of Christ. And so if you feel as though your salvation now gives you a pass that you can sin and experience freedom from consequences, Jesus Christ would identify you as someone who's, who's living like an unbeliever and probably has never truly come to Christ. That was the same attitude the Pharisees had. Oh, they wanted the freedom from Rome, but they did not want obligation to the king themselves. So Jesus... Speaking of the kingdom never corrects their understanding of the kingdom. And so I think it ought to stay consistent with the Old Testament expression. A descendant of David, Jesus fulfills that. Reigning over the place of Israel as his capital and epicenter of power, but reigning over that realm. Okay, so Jesus then says this. I want to take you back into the, into the beginning part of the passage where he says this in verse 34 and 35. All these things Jesus did in parables. Indeed, he said nothing of them without a parable. And it was to fill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what is hidden since the foundation of the world. I want to take you to two other texts that I think help us understand that thought there and understand where we sit in this. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, so we come to verse 11. And he's saying, remember, this is chapter 2 of Ephesians. Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. We continue down in this passage, verse 12. You were alienated and strangers from the promises of God without hope. Verse 13, in Christ, 
You who are far have been brought near. All right, so we have this, this idea that those Gentiles who are outside have now been brought into the promises of God. Come to chapter 3 with me. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden For ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. When you look in this passage, he is... is, doing exactly what Jesus did, but with more definition now. That is, there was a message hidden, it's now revealed. It's God's plan forever in the past. This is not a surprise, this is not a detour. God didn't say, oh boy, Jews rejected Jesus, plan B. His plan all along was to send Jesus in his first ministry as a suffering servant, so that one day he could come back as this sovereign king. That was his plan from ages past. But here's the grace of the plan. When Israel rejects Jesus, we somewhat have an intermission in the program for Israel. Okay, so Israel was the, kind of the, the center of God's kingdom program. And it's almost as though the king comes, they reject him as king, and God pushes pause on the development of the kingdom itself. And now we have this, I'm going to use the word intermission, in Israel's program. Come with me to chapter 9. What is God doing in this intermission? Sorry, I said Romans 9, it's actually Romans 11. I want you to look in verse 17 with me in Romans 11. Throwing another metaphor at us, this is another agricultural one. Definitely see that scripture uses a lot of agriculture. That's, they're an agricultural society. Everyone knows ag in the Bible times. Now we live in cities. So I, I think most of you are familiar with the idea of grafting. Um, I've never done this with a tree. I know my brother experienced this. He ripped some skin off his hand all the way to the bone, and they took a piece of skin from his leg, patched it onto his finger, and so now he grows hair on the bottom of his finger, and he has a big square-like patch that will never tan on his thigh. That's grafting. It's taking something from somewhere else and growing it on something else. And so they grafted a piece of his skin from his thigh onto the bottom of his finger. So if my brother ever visits our church, please ask to see his right hand. He'll love it. That's grafting. That's the picture in verse 17 of Romans. In Romans 11, what if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree? God's saving plan of redemption was centered on Israel. And when Israel rejected the Messiah, it's as though he lops off Israel, sets it aside, takes us, calls us a wild olive branch. We're not part of the garden. We're not part of anything productive. He grabs us, anchors us to the tree of life so that now we have the grace of life among us Gentiles. This is God's program. So you say, what's happening in the intermission? The intermission is Israel's program is set aside so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. I want you to come down with me to verse 24. For if you are cut off, um, for if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to your nature that is, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted what? Back into. So I call it an intermission. 
Because right now the branch of Israel is set to the side. God's program is for all of the world, including any Jew. It's not that, that the Jews can't be saved, but it's that the program is not nationally centered on Israel right now. Now just think, I mean, you, you should be so grateful for this. I mean, are, are any of you like full-blooded Jewish people grew up in orthodoxy? I would imagine most of us aren't. And so maybe we got like three of you. But all the rest of us would have been outside of the tree of grace that Romans 11 describes. And God has set aside the program focusing on Israel so that we who are not part of Israel could be grafted in saving grace. Now there's purpose behind this. I want you to come back to verse 25 with me now. He goes, lest you be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't be proud. I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery brothers. You hear that word again? Mystery. Same thing we saw in Ephesians, the same word Jesus uses. Speaks to something that was hidden, now revealed. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So previously, he had spoken about jealousy stirred up among Israel because of all the Gentiles coming to grace. It's almost like they didn't know what they threw away. And then seeing all of the salvation work that God is doing among the nations, God will stir Israel to come back to Christ. So that even in being gracious to us, he's provoking in them repentance so they'll come back home. That's the gracious plan that was hidden. This is the intermission in the program for the nation of Israel as the epicenter of the kingdom program of Christ. So when Jesus in Matthew 13, we're going to go back there now, and, and for the most part we'll stay in Matthew 13. So if some of you are like, I'm done turning my Bible. Last time. Okay, this is, this is the purpose of verses 34 and 35. So I want to ask you a couple questions and then answer them with you. What exactly is happening during intermission? Usually if you go to a program, if you go to some Broadway thing, show... What happens during intermission? Nothing that you see. I, I imagine having never been on Broadway and never... <laughs> believe me, they wouldn't want me. Then I'm, I'm guessing backstage, it is a flurry of business. Working to change, to change the backgrounds, to change the set, to change clothes, to get, get dialed in. So what's happening during the intermission right now? Because that's actually what Jesus is doing. He's preparing his disciples to be faithful in the program during intermission. So I want you to come back with me into this text, and, and I think we at least see a few important activities happening that you and I need to be part of. First, it is a time of great growth. If you, if you go to verse 32, his whole point of this, this mustard seed is it's tiny. Where did the, where did the intermission start? With, with what people? I mean, you can almost get them on two hands, right? We have, we have the 11 apostles. I'm subtracting Judas. I don't think he was ever one of the true, right? He was never part of the mustard seed. So we have Jesus and his 11, tiny for kingdom building. Now we look at the global church throughout all of history. I don't know how, how many people are in the church throughout the globe, but the underground church in China is blowing up. In glorious ways. I think we saw the missions movements of the 1700s into the 1800s expand the gospel. People are getting saved. The message of Christ is moving. It's this time of great growth. The whole point of yeast is a little bit permeates the whole lump. So this massive growth is happening. The farmer is sending out his laborers and they're planting gospel seed. If you look at how he defines them in that last section in verses 38 and following, he defines them as sons of the kingdom. That, that is true, genuine believers who have this inheritance of God's kingdom. 
So it's a time of great growth. It's a time in which the sun is busy bringing more people in, of planting good seed, of grain, as he identifies it here. If you were to go back to the previous section in another agricultural analogy, the seed that falls in good soil brings forth fruit. And Jesus is currently at work. It's a time of great growth. Let me also just suggest it's a time of, and this may sound strange, but a time of freedom, both for God's people as well as for Satan. What happens as the son is sending his servants out to plant in the field? What happens at night? Yeah, look down with me in, in verse 38. The field of the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of whom? The evil one, they have the character of the enemy. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So right now, what is God doing in this intermission between the program of Israel where it was paused and where it will resume is the Gentiles are being saved, but but Satan is at work. I really don't think about Satan too much in my regular life. You know, something bad happens, and I don't think, oh, that was Satan. But if one of my kids said, the devil made me do it, that excuse doesn't cut it in our house. But Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, do not be deceived. We are not wrestling simply against flesh and blood, against human power, but there is a real enemy who wants nothing more than to promote his program that is contrary to God, contrary to grace, and bring many into eternal destruction and judgment. And I would think, that at least by implication, that if, if, the weed Jesus uses to talk about looks like wheat. That we need to be thoughtful that the enemy is at work, even among us, to destroy the brightness and the purity of the church. And we should be thoughtful that that would include our homes. It's interesting to see the servants surprised by this. And I think, again, Jesus is preparing and equipping his disciples to recognize that this is not the glamorous ministry of 100% success. That there are going to be mixed challenges and blessings together. So that as they cultivate the field of God's harvest, they're also looking at the church saying, why are there weeds? And Jesus' answer is, because I'm letting the enemy run free. As the gospel runs free, to the Gentiles, so also does the enemy. This is part of God's plan from the foundation of the world to let the gospel run free, but also to allow the opposition of Satan to run. And this leads to, I, I think, a third observation. So it's a time of great growth. It's a time of gospel freedom. It's also a time when Satan has his own. I, I already read the verse, but I'll read it again. Verse 41 when you look down at verse 41, it says, The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. I read one verse too late. Let me go back to verse 39 and 40. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest of the end of the age, and the reapers of the angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. So we have these, these children of Satan being raised up. He is trying to do everything he can to secure them. He's trying to do everything he can to expand his kingdom. At least if you track with the world and its culture, there has never been a time where we've seen any political movement truly bring a restoration to the brokenness of the human spirit. It doesn't matter if it's capitalism or socialism. It doesn't matter if it's political freedom or political tyranny. Darkness fills the globe. And the answer is Christ. Jesus in this passage reminds us that the, the moving of the world is shaped by the spiritual powers of heaven and hell, not by politics. I think that's both encouraging as well as challenging for us. Sometimes we can get caught up in the things of this life and forget that the harvest is coming. So Satan has his own children. I think we sometimes don't think of people that way. When someone is saved, we look at them as securely saved. When someone is a child of Satan, 
they have secured for themselves eternal judgment. The, Maya, the Messiah has sons. I, I think this is, is precious to us to just uh, hold on to for a little bit. He answered them, verse 37, The one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. So, so how is the kingdom program happening right now? What's going on? What's happening during intermission? Well, during intermission, we're signing people into the citizenship of heaven. We are not currently in the kingdom program in the sense of like the king is not reigning in Israel. Is Jesus on the throne of heaven? Absolutely. He is king over all the universe. But is he currently exercising his reign over Israel? Not yet. But what is happening? Is real citizenship is being transferred from sin, from being under the enemy, to being under grace, to being saved by grace, to being under Christ's kingship, and we are being brought into citizenship that will one day be guaranteed and culminating in us being actually physically and spiritually present in the kingdom, not simply spiritually. The Son of Man is planting good seed so that they are sons of the kingdom. If you look in verse 43, they will be in the kingdom then. Okay, so we have these uh, kind of four ingredients or four activities that are going on. We have it's a time of growth, it's a time of freedom, Satan is moving, and the Messiah is getting sons. Sons of the kingdom. So what does the end look like? Jesus uses this phrase harvest. Harvest is when you, you take all the fruit off the plants and then you, you kill the plants, really. You, you plow them under and you redo it the next year if you're a farmer. So this time of harvest, he describes, is when angels go out and gather, verse 38. The field is, is ready for harvest. Verse 39, the enemy is sowed. The end of the age comes, and the reapers are angels. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weep, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He defines three, three judgments right, that are on, on the person who's not a believer. The person who's not a believer will, will be judged and put into this place of weeping, gnashing of teeth, and fire. That's miserable. And, and we don't want to undermine God's justice by somehow reducing the horrors of hell. If we think hell is too severe, it is probably because we do not think our sin against our great God is too bad. We do not see the treachery in our hearts as treachery and rebellion against the King of Kings and the King of Grace and the King of Love. We see it simply as a choice. And we are, we are in a culture that likes to rephrase evil into choice, preference, decision, consent. And in doing so, we strip our conscience of guilt. And we at least put a yellow light on what should have a red light. And I am not here to like pound you with guilt and add pressure upon you as much as just simply to say, our God is loving and just. There will not be one measure of pain by anyone who is weeping and having gnashing teeth, and in that place of torment, there will not be one ounce of sorrow or misery that is not fully deserved and right and good. As a parent, there are times, probably most times, where I'm on one side or the other of failure. Like my kid has done something really, really bad, but it is right in the middle of the perfect movie, and I'm like, don't do it anymore, we're good. Because... Because at that moment, my discipline is not about my child. It's about not being inconvenienced. And there are other times where their sin may not actually be that big a sin. Frankly, it may not even be sin. But because it messed up my world, the wrath of dad will fall hard on that kid. And that's not just either. God's justice, when he describes it here, is unflinchingly perfect in who 
and perfect in weight. And the severity of it should cause us to be very, very severe towards our sin. Very careful, quick to repent, and quick to see our guilt as extremely guilty. This is not the only promise at the end of the harvest. Look at the very end. I think if we bring these together, it's actually a sweet promise to us. The righteous, verse 43, will what? Will shine like the sun. S-U-N. Now, I've always thought that God's glory is one of those fascinating things to think of in Scripture. The Bible describes God as spirit. It says God is spirit. Spirit means he has no mass or matter and does not take up space. Right? God, is, God is out of, of, of the way we think of like you know, this world of space, time, and matter. He does not exist in that. He is not in that construct. So when Moses sees with his eyes glory, that is not something God has eternally possessed. That is something God has created so that Moses and us can, in God's presence, see what is unseeable. I mean, have you ever thought about this? That his glory expresses his attributes. I can't see your attributes. I don't see you walking in Walmart and think, oh, he's like a 10-watt light bulb. He's probably a little bit kind. You don't see kindness like that. It's not like you glow kindness. And if you did, we'd send you to the hospital. So God glows brilliantly, so much so that Moses, who sees God walking away from him, has his face glowing too. God does this to preach to us what was unseeable, inexperienceable, because he lives in unapproachable light. He does this to preach to us and connect to us in some way we can experience how incredible he is. And the picture seems to indicate here that in the kingdom, God allows our glory to show a little too. We will shine like the sun. And notice he just said, I'm going to take out from this earth everything that causes sin and all lawbreakers. Now he's talking about people because he says, and they will. So he's saying, I will remove from my world all impurity, all that causes sin, and then they will shine like the sun where? In God's kingdom. When does the kingdom come crashing through all the wickedness and wrongness of this world? And do we see the full display of Christ enthroned with his people? When the harvest comes. At the end of the age, this passage says. I want to take you back to something you may have missed that I just think is really sweet. So we come to verse 31. And we have this mustard seed. Verse 32, it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown larger than all the garden plants, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, when you read that, are you like, oh, wow, that's good. Or are you like, huh, moving on? So I just want to read, I want to read to you two passages from the Old Testament. One is the vision uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about this this image of, of what he could be as a king. Here's what Daniel 4, 11, and 12 say. Just listen carefully. The tree grew, that's his kingship and his kingdom. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I'll take you to Ezekiel 17 and read another passage. In this passage, God has promised Israel, like a tall cedar, he's going to lop off its king, the tip of its, its tree. And then he says this, I will make myself a sprig 
from the lofty top of the cedar, and I will set it out. And I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on high and on a lofty mountain. And on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. That noble cedar is Jesus, just in case you're not tracking with what's happening in that passage. God breaks down Israel, breaks off this little tiny tender twig and plants it so that all the world can see it and it will grow into a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. This is the work of God to take a little baby born in Bethlehem, a little sprig off the broken tree of Israel, and turn him into a glorious king where all the birds of the nations find rest, are fed, and are safe. I think Jesus is inferring from this parable the mustard seed starts small, and it grows Because God gives freedom for the gospel to spread. The enemy is at work. The enemy is at work. Don't be deceived. This is not all the gospel. There is also Satan at work. Even so, there is a coming end, the harvest, when God will send out his angels, and in the harvest, there will be a division. And in that division, those who are sons of the enemy will be cast forever into fire, into gnashing and weeping, They will be forever judged and punished. However, God's children, sons of the kingdom, will be welcomed into the eternal kingdom of Christ. They'll be welcomed into as those who've been purged from every sin so they shine like the sun and find rest in the king. So what then are you to do with this? Now that you have a full exposition of what was hidden and now is revealed as you understand the program of the kingdom, this intermission period where the church thrives, I would suggest for you a few things. There's only one time to plant. There's only one time in which we are called to be participants in the kingdom program, to be casting the gospel seed out, and it's now. Harvest is coming Parents, be busy with the gospel in your home because your children will be harvested either into the glory of the kingdom or into the terrors of God's fiery punishment. We have a community around us. We have apartments that fill the south and the north of this area. I know they need Jesus. They stole my laptop a year or two ago. We need to carry this gospel because we've been given freedom now, responsibility now. Get the seed out. It's not just about loving them. It's not just about being better so they see the light of Christ. We need to carry the gospel to them. This is the Lord's field. And through us, he plants. It's very clear in the early verses where the son planted. The next verse says, they planted. And he uses us as his instruments of planting. Do your neighbors, do our church's neighbors, do your co-workers ever hear the gospel from you? Now is the time to plant. It's a time of preparation. I think there's also future hope. We live in a broken world. Whether or not you voted this last week or if you're concerned about it, I think one of the encouraging things about the screaming on Facebook leading up to the election was how there's a consistent and urgent call for Christians to love life. To love life. So we live in a broken world. The enemy is death. The enemy loves to bring people into eternal death and secure them into eternal damnation. We live in a broken world. 
that does not value human life. I do not think it will be too long, and I'm not saying this president or that president. I'm not trying to pick a political party now as much as to say we live in a broken world. China is persecuting Muslims and Christians and killing them and turning them in camps. There are more martyrs for Christianity in the 1900s than the previous 18th centuries before it. We live in a dark country that celebrates sexual promiscuity like it's a good thing. It's destroying homes and leaving babies to be raised with single mothers in poverty. Listen, we live in a broken, broken world. And its sharp edges cut you. They hurt your homes. We have tragedies within the church. Cancers and stillborn children. We have sorrows of jobs lost, of people hurting deeply in ways we don't know. People struggling with depression. Sin is part of this world. But one day, Jesus will send his angels. And all that is impure. All that causes sin will be taken out. And that's the secure hope of every Christian. That we will be in the kingdom. That we will be rescued from the brokenness of a broken and sinful and wicked and rebellious world. So right now, God calls you to live in it with courage and hope. Should you be surprised when the ugly edges of brokenness touch you? Like sharp glass, they cut you when they touch. Whether it's the personal conflict of of sin in your home, whether it's the tragedy of a lack of health that's going to lead you to the grave, I'm pretty sure we're all going there. Unless the Lord comes quicker. And we welcome him and his kingdom. But if we're all going to go into the grave, then we're all going to be touched by deep tragedy that's a result of sin. So be secure. The king is coming back. And one of the things he calls us to do is suffer in a world of sinfulness so that the gospel can keep spreading. You're saying, why doesn't Jesus come back today? Why doesn't he stop abortion? Why doesn't he just like quit China and fix it? Second Peter says, God is patient so that more can get saved. Because now is the time for the gospel to move. If, you're the under, if you are under the age of 30 and you have not given missions a serious thought and you are a Christian, I did not say Siri. I'm glad she was feeling conviction too. She's under 30. I don't think she's saved. (laughs) If you have not thought about missions, can I call you to repent and then think about missions? There are 8 billion people in the world. Most of them will go to hell. They are the weeds. Who's going to go and plant seeds? in North Africa, in North India, in Western China, in Mongolia? Who's going to go to Iran? How does God's seed get cast if we don't go? The means of the freedom being exercised by us is us going. If God has given this age to be a time of freedom to plant Let's go. Church family, we need to be praying about planting a church. I don't know how full our parking lot was today, but it's been full for the last several weeks of cars. Maybe we should be thinking about planting a church downtown and reaching some of the poorest of the poor in our community. Pray that the Lord would use us to move gospel into a community filled with unbelievers. And Bakersfield has, what, five or 600,000 people? How many of them are sweet brothers and sisters in Christ? The gospel needs to move. And it moves through the faithfulness of his people. Hope. 
Encouragement, because the kingdom is coming. Faithfulness, because the kingdom's coming, and now is the time to move. And Jesus prepares his disciples, listen, intermission only lasts a short amount of time. The curtain's going to open. What are you doing? Are you faithful? Pray for our church to be faithful. Be committed to the task. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a reminder that you are still accomplishing your mission. Your plan has not changed from the beginning of time. We were surprised by the intermission. You were not. And Lord, this, this pause in the process of the kingdom gives us opportunity to advance the gospel to the nations, to see men and women raised up to share the good news of Jesus Christ in Western Europe and the dark places of this world, in North Africa and across the southern portion of Asia where the gospel is so suppressed sometimes not even present in any form. Lord, would you cast the gospel seed in those places by sending people from this church, sending people from the other good churches in our community that are discipling men and women to love missions because they care about the gospel and the glory of Christ, even in places that do not know of him yet. Father, would you grow your church? You promise that you will build it, that you will not let hell stand against it with any success. And so, Lord, we pray that you would push the church forward, that you would push us past comfort, and that by faith we'd go to these places. Father, prepare for us to plant more churches in this community. California has some 40 million people. Lord, they do not know you. And generally speaking, our own state has become a wasteland of bankrupt churches that do not know Christ. Father, please send church planters and church revitalization pastors out that we would see California turn toward Christ. And Father, I pray for our homes and the sweet sounds of the gospel would be filling our rooms and our homes so that babies and children are raised up to love Christ and to be excited about the kingdom work he has called them to do. Father, one day, one day we will find the rest that your kingdom promises. But today is the day of work and labor. Today is the day where people are redeemed and rescued from the enemy. And so I pray that you'll cause us to both be faithful, but also hopeful. That the injuries of this world, the injuries of this life are simply temporary. That there is a day coming when heaven will greet us. And the pain and the sorrows and the tears will be gone. Lord, let us long for the day. Give us strength to hope for then. Let us build treasures for tomorrow, not for today, so that we might find the joy and the welcome and the pleasure of heaven on us. In Jesus' name, amen.